0: Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Hi, thanks again for joining me for another awesome episode of Fraudology Podcast. I have just been so lucky throughout my career to get to meet and work with some incredible fraud fighters. And that was one of my goals of having this podcast was to introduce you to people who may not be in the spotlight much, but who really deserve it. And Monica Sharp is no exception. I think we had known of each other for several years via LinkedIn, and we knew a lot of the same people, but we actually never really officially met until she joined the F4 virtual retreat, the fearless female fraud fighter retreat. And there was something about her energy that kind of shone through. There were, I mean... There were awesome people with lots of energy on the call, but I took notice of her and she contributed some pretty awesome experiences to the conversation. And I touched base with her after the retreat and asked her if she would be willing to share some of her experiences. As you're about to find out, Monica spent almost 30 years at Apple. And this is a little bit of a longer episode than usual because there was just so much to pack in. But I think you will learn so much, not just about behind the scenes at Apple, which is pretty cool because it doesn't happen so often publicly. And there were a lot of things she couldn't talk about. Understandably so. I can't even imagine how thick the exit paperwork is, but that's the way it is at lots of big companies and there's a reason for it. Totally respect that. But she was able to share a lot about her own experiences in learning throughout the process of becoming a product manager, program manager, project manager, not exactly in that order, and then eventually really working with the fraud team for the last 10 years of her career and all of the crazy things they saw throughout that time and just how ahead of their time they had to be because there was such a target on their back. So I'm really looking forward to you hearing this episode. I know I've heard a lot of great feedback about the interview with Frank McKenna, as well as several other awesome people we've had so far. And I've got some pretty great people lined up for the future too. So I can't wait for you to tune into this episode and others in the future. And I look forward to hearing what you think after this interview
1: is done. Monica, I am so happy that you're here. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. It was a wonderful surprise to be invited. And I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. You
0: too. And we've had a few conversations enough for me to know that you have such a wealth of knowledge and experience in a company that a lot of times we don't get a lot of windows into. I think at one point I joked like, so are you in the witness
1: protection program? (laughs) (laughs) It definitely kind of felt, yes, absolutely. You're right. I have had the very good fortune of having almost 30 years of a career at Apple. And it is funny because I joke about having left a really cool witness protection program, because I literally spent decades with, you don't talk about what you're doing. You don't talk about what the company's doing. And so I very rarely talk to people outside of Apple about what I did at Apple. In fact, I mentioned to my sister earlier, she called me and I said, Hey, I got to get ready for this interview. And I told her what it was about. She goes, Oh, now maybe we'll finally know what the heck you did when you were at Apple. Cause I thought you <laughs> had the same job for 30 years. I'm like, no. <laughs> same company
0: that pays my paycheck. Very exactly. different jobs.
1: Very different jobs.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's the way it is for a lot of tech companies. But there are definitely some who have adapted to wanting to collaborate on fraud and security issues and others that see it as a competitive advantage. And I'm not. Here to judge either one of those approaches to fraud, but I am such a big proponent on sharing information and education and collaboration because at the end of the day, it's not this company versus that company, it's these companies together versus the bad guys. It's just such a treat to not just hear about what you did for Apple in the fraud space, which we will be getting to, obviously, all the details that you can talk about now that Correct.
1: you're right. No uh, secret sauce. Right. No secret <laughs> sauce.
0: But there's a lot of things that can still be learned from your experience and, and all of that. But I would love to, just even me trying to picture what technology, like what the technology ecosystem was <laughs> when you started at Apple, I would love to hear a little bit about about the first role you accepted there and what that was like when you got started.
1: So it was a very different world. Take into consideration, so I I started at Apple in June of 92. And keep in mind, when I started, it was Apple Computer Inc. It was not Apple Inc. And Apple was manufacturing and selling personal desktop computers. These are the days of beige boxes. This is pre-internet. And email was not prevalent. You had things internally. But it was a dream come true for me to work for this company because the personal desktop computer was revolutionary. I lived the life of writing papers on a typewriter and 10-page term papers. And you would make a mistake and you'd have to start all over. and. Mm. So when I was in college and got a chance to work on a Mac SE and it was a game changer. It was like, Oh my God, I can correct my mistakes. I can print it out. And it was such a huge productivity change. And that was revolutionary. It seems so quaint, (laughs) but it was having the little floppy drive where you could put a document on a little floppy drive and take it to another little beige box and, bring it up there. It's Oh my God, my mind is blown. When I thought I was graduating from college the first time, and I was thinking, where would I want to go work? Apple was the number one company because to me, that was a company that was producing products that I believed in that was having a positive impact on people's lives. This was desktop computing, which is just so crazy to think about with where we are today. That was the company, and you couldn't buy as a consumer direct from Apple. You had to go to an Apple authorized reseller. The only people that, or you know, organizations could buy direct were K through twelve education, state and local government, or higher ed institutions. And since I didn't graduate from college that first time, the stars aligned when a year later, and I really was graduating. It was perfect alignment because Apple had decided to move their U.S. operations from Sunnyvale, California and Charlotte, North Carolina and consolidate in the sleepy little college town of Austin, Texas, which is where I was. So I was one of about 300 people who were hired locally. And I think in total, when they brought those different U.S. operation roles, finance, revenue accounting, tech support, and a handful of others, it was like, I think, a total of 500 employees, something like that, which seems so huge back then. But it's just so tiny compared to what the Apple presence is in Austin today. And I started as a database administrator in revenue accounting. This is my first real job out of college. And I was one of three people who was responsible for setting up and maintaining the accounts for all of these customers who were buying product from us. And I was responsible for the central US. These were in the days of IBM as 400s And I had my little AS, you know, my system that I was responsible for and two people that had their others. It was just like, oh my God, I'm part of a company that is doing incredible stuff. That's where I came in. And it was a very different world. Like I said, just with the products and the focus. And we're compared to where it is today.
0: It's funny that you guys were responsible for driving this huge shift in technology. Now it seems like it's always been that way. But I remember that too. And my dad had his own business and brought home that Mac. And I think it was like, whoa, this is there's a computer in our house. And I mean, it didn't have, you know, internet or anything else, but like, why would we need it? And it was black and white and the whole thing. So it's funny though, that you guys were revolutionizing that, but yet you still were using IBM huge computers for computing.
1: It was <laughs> mainframe. I mean, there were no right. servers. There were, this was personal desktop. <laughs> and it gets even better actually, Chris, because in my role as a database administrator, in setting up those accounts, It was a very paper-driven process. That's what's so funny. Literally, from the customer request to purchase, again, nothing online. So they would fax their purchase order into Apple, into sales support, and a human would go check the fax machine. and They'd divvy up POs, and sales support would look into the system, that AS400 to see if there was already an account set up. And if not, they had this four-page, know, quadruplicate form that they would fill out with the customer information, billing address, shipping address, and they would timestamp it, tear off a piece of paper, walk the form to accounts receivable who would, you know, write in the credit limit, timestamp it, tear off a piece of paper. They would come to my team and we each have our little inboxes. I would look for the customer if they weren't there. I'd create an account if they were, you know, I'd write in the customer number, the account number, and timestamp it, take my piece of paper and walk that fourth page back to the person who had requested the account. And it was just, I'm like, oh, it gets better because at the end of every month, I had to count up each of the database administrators, we had to count up how many little pieces of paper we had processed and we would report that number. That was our metric on productivity. Wow. After two months of this, and I had in my, before Apple, I had been an intern at a state agency where I, I taught myself how to use FileMaker. And I created this database for invoicing people who were subscribing to get economic and demographic information. And so I'm I'm in my job at Apple and I'm like, what the heck are we doing with paper? We're a computer company. (laughs) So (laughs) so, Pipsqueak, you know, newbie, new hire me. I'm like going to my manager and the managers in the other departments going, we need to automate this. I'll build a FileMaker database. And I was so surprised at the pushback. And it took like a six-week committee to have conversations and evaluate and should we really do this? And I'm like, I will build the database myself. The good news is I was able to get agreement from everyone and get their buy-in and support. And I built the tool. took me probably a total of a week, maybe two, to build it and test it with different people. And then we rolled it out. And then that actually led to some other projects of doing some automation. But that was the first foray of... Why are we doing things the way we're doing when there is another way? Looking for these opportunities of improving a process, automating a process, and really also recognizing, okay, just because I have this idea, not everybody else is going to agree with it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and what does it take to get people to buy in? That was the cornerstone that kind of unleashed me And all of my other roles that I I had at Apple where I've carried that with me of how can we optimize? How can we improve? Let's not settle. Always wanting to evaluate both process, how people work with each other, technologies. And it's fun. I love bringing order to things. I love Mm. optimizing things. So it ties into just my nature. I can
0: definitely relate to that. And I think a lot of people that are fraud fighters can too, but a lot of times we're met with Lack of desire to change. So oftentimes we're really excited to pick up the rock and see what's underneath. But then other people in the industry here, or not in the industry, within a company are like, then that means I have to deal with that creepy <laughs> crawler. And then that means I have to know that there's that thing underneath the rock. And then, or how do we know that really you have this hypothesis that you're You believe with everything in your being is going to work, but how do we Mm -hmm. know for sure it is? But I do think that those are 100% good skills for a fast moving technology company. And I would imagine that while every company has those people who don't want to adapt and change, I would imagine that Apple would not have grown as quickly or as much as it did in 30 years if that wasn't in the ethos of wanting to. Adapt and be better and optimize.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And even when I left Apple in 2019, that culture of let's figure it out, let's figure out how to make this work. And that was there in the beginning when I joined Apple, even though I ran into some resistance, I certainly saw that in other areas. And in that early part of my career at quarter end, like it was like all hands on deck, everybody help out to enter orders, let's ship as much product out before the end of the quarter and do what it takes to make it happen. And the other interesting aspect of my career, which I didn't recognize at the time, but certainly I see it in retrospect, I joined the company right before some really dark days for the company. And there were certainly lots of articles in the San Jose Mercury News about Apple's going out of business. And there were changes in CEO Scully left. Then Michael Spindler came and went, Gil came and went, and there were layoffs. I saw entire teams disappear. They were in the directory on Friday and by Monday they were gone. And so there was a lot of scary times, which resulted in a lot of reorg. And I would come in on Monday and I may have a new, not may, I did have a new manager, or I was moved into a new team. But that aspect of, okay, what does it take to get it done is just, okay, now I have something new to learn. What did I have? What did I learn before that I can apply into this new role or into this new line of business? And overall, I held a lot of different roles within the company from project manager, program manager, product manager, both US, regional and worldwide. And it really was across the company, even though I was based in Austin. It was like, again, in hindsight, oh my God, how cool is that? Where I was going to different countries and corporate, but I started in revenue accounting. I was, and, and at the time I joined Apple, we still had sabbaticals. That was where you would get every five mm. years, you'd get six weeks paid leave to go recharge and you could add vacations. Nice. So people would be going anywhere from six to 12 weeks. And teams sometimes when they <laughs> <laughs> I mean-
0: yeah. At some and, like slow moving utility <laughs> company, everything would be the same. But in technology, that's like a couple years sometimes.
1: Yes. And so when people would take their sabbatical, you had to have a backfill. So I got to backfill in sales. Hmm. I got to backfill in corporate in the contracts department. So, so I did that. I worked in as a project manager within operations, manufacturing. Supply chain, Apple online store, logistics, retail store. And again, some of those changes and responsibilities were reorg, some of those were promotions, and I was internally recruited. But in all of those experiences, it was wonderful because I, I love learning new stuff. So yeah. I would learn a new area of business. I like going deep into the business and understanding how it functions and who are the players, who were the partner teams that the business is dependent on. And it was really cool because like I said, I started at Apple when everything was a beige brown box. But it, again, at that time, it was the coolest beige brown box you could ever get your hands on. Oh, yeah. And the company evolved when Steve came back, all the changes with the product line and iMac, iPod, iPad, iPhone, iTunes, all the eyes, retail store, online store, all of those things. I was, if you think of it like, When I joined Apple, that brown-beige box was like this single-cell organism. And Mm. over the years, it became this much more complex animal. I think of an elephant. And every piece, every body part of that elephant is a line of business within the company. And that can be something that's externally impacting customers, or it's just the internal mechanism on how it's run. Tim Cook was revolutionary in the just-in-time inventory and how Apple utilized that. So I had a real privileged opportunity to work in so many different areas of the company and get this exposure, again, leading Projects that were technically focused or business process focused, building out programs and owning those programs. And so I had the advantage of understanding the elephant in its entirety, whereas the business owners often were very focused on just the tail, just the trunk, just the eye. Mm -hmm. But they were hyper-focused and committed and they owned that with all their heart. So that seeing the big picture allowed me to be really effective in working with them, especially when challenges did arrive.
0: Yeah, such a good analogy. And I would imagine that by doing that, that was one of the reasons why you survived so many layoffs and reorgs was because you probably became what I used to refer to myself as out of humility, not out of ego. But I, as the, really the Swiss army knife of the organization, if somebody doesn't Mm -hmm. know who to ask, it's a funky, weird problem or weird question. They're like, Oh, Monica will know because you (laughs) understood how all of those pieces went together. And I feel like I've always been that person within a company because I'd always want to go to the customer service first and Mm -hmm. figure out what's happening on the ground and then move in. And even just as the industry, right, from a fraud prevention perspective, I pride myself in being that person that so many companies are like, this is a gnarly problem. Okay, Carice is going to know. And if I don't, I know who does. And so I understand the pride, but also the responsibility that can come with that and the exhaustion because not only doing whatever job is right in front of you, but helping other people around the way. This is a good transition because I think having all of that experience came in so handy when there was a big problem that presented itself to Apple in the form of payment fraud. And you guys had a target on your back because you built such great products that the resell value of that was Mm -hmm. so high. And Mm -hmm. there was also always a constant demand. And so criminals wanted to get that supply directly from you or from eventually from resellers when it became Mm -hmm. too challenging to get it from you. But I'd love to Better understand those first few, I don't know if it's years or weeks or months when that became a problem and then how you started to get involved with the set of skills you had of looking at all of the stakeholders and looking at the problem as it fit into the elephant and then also Mm -hmm. narrowing down into the problem.
1: Yeah, definitely. My transition in my career into the fearless fraud fighting phase Was you know I love the terms, terms. <laughs> it was I love it too. It was accidental. I had changed jobs and moved into what was then called a business intelligence team. Which this was about 2007. BI, business intelligence, big data, data lakes—that was all the rage. And that BI team also housed the fraud team. And this was the Apple online store fraud team, which was about four people, and they had a solution in place, and also. So step back for a second. So 92, Apple's brand was known globally. It's like, if you see this brand, people know. It. You show it anywhere in the world, people know what it is. Value-wise, the company, not very high-valued company. In 2007, the value was going way up. All of the products that were coming out. And like you mentioned, high demand products, especially for very interested consumers in countries where those products weren't available. So, when we had new product introductions, people buying those, buying up inventory so they could turn around and resell it outside the US market or other authorized countries, gray market space. So, there were issues starting to pop up where it was evident that the company needed beefier capabilities that were more flexible, that it would scale. And while the team had resources in place, and again, that culture of we're going to figure out how to address this problem, come hell or high water, that served the team well to find tools and solutions to detect and mitigate things like the gray market activity and payment fraud. And that led to an initiative to find a replacement solution and to do an RFP. And so I was Asked to lead that project. And I was working with a a tiny but mighty team of about 10 people total from the fraud team, engineering, platform architecture, a few other resources to do an RFP and identify some solution that was out on the market. And this was both for the analytics engine and for case management. And I worked with the team to make sure there were clearly defined success criteria, clearly defined capabilities, going well beyond rules based. Kind of solutions. And what so year was the, that? this was, so we actually did that initiative. That was back in 2012. Okay. We were like, let's do this RFP. The space was still pretty strong back
0: then. There were a few of you tech companies that were moving on to machine learning, and mm-hmm. PayPal had really done that with the purchase of fraud sciences and all of that. But yeah, back that I. Just, it helps me for the timeline. I feel like sometimes I'm a historian of fraud, but (laughs) you guys have always been in, and several of the large tech companies have always been on the cutting edge of of what's needed for very obvious reasons. You're getting the bad guys first. And most of the time you're getting those very skilled professional cyber criminals. You're not getting the noobs or the script kiddies. You're getting the people who are trained to gold mine, so to speak.
1: Definitely. Yeah, definitely that way, for sure. Absolutely. Yes.
0: But there will always be people who will really want to be able to say, I got through on this company or that company. But for the most part, it became like that's where the professional guys Mm -hmm. went. So you guys had to be cutting edge of technology. And a lot of times the technology that was available to the public wasn't always sophisticated enough for what you were seeing at the time. Absolutely. That's still actually true in some ways. Now, even with so many more options out in the market than ever before, been than, than back then. And just congruently in my own life, I met Dave, who uh, mm-hmm. you know founded that team and who's just an incredible legendary yeah yeah, he's an incredible (laughs) brain i gotta sit in a course that he did for the merchant risk council in 2009 in vegas and he did like a tom and jerry cartoon of you know fraud is cat and mouse yep and i just remembered that so vividly and also thinking i think that was one of the first times that i thought wow this could be my career like if apple has a fraud team and apple has people that are thinking in this way so much more beyond what I'm thinking of for my small company now. There's a lot of opportunity. And if Apple's doing it, then it's got to be important. And I was able to go back (laughs) to my team and go, hey, I know you think that fraud isn't that glamorous, but Apple has one heck of a team. So yeah, I fond memories of that. And I think that was probably one of the last years he was allowed to share. Not because he didn't do a good job, but because of Seeing the risk as a competitive yeah. advantage, yeah, yeah, and privacy and totally understandable. But that was back when the annual attendance was like 250 people, not wow. 1,800, like the last one before the pandemic, 16 or 18. It was a lot of people. And then 2012 was when I went and started at the MRC and got to see oh, things at such okay. a higher perspective, really. And that 10,000 foot view versus just the microscopic. So following along with you, just uh, <laughs> wanted to make sure... It certainly is not about me, but want to make sure it's set context, because yeah, no. I appreciate if you were that. doing the RFP now, it would have probably a, a different outcome than oh, it did back absolutely. then. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And with that RFP and looking at the options that were available, we did choose one vendor to do a 90-day proof of concept because... It was very important then. And I absolutely still believe it's very important to do a try before you buy. When you're making investments and in, certainly significant investments in new technology and... And um, into your
0: infrastructure. It's not just into someone else's technology. This is going to be embedded into your infrastructure. Yep. And so it's not just a trust thing. It's a, yeah, are you going to be able to work? And are you going to be able to work with our, volumes, and our the, the
1: throughput, expectation
0: with customer service mm-hmm.
1: and SLAs? Yeah all those things. And so yeah, doing the try before you buy it, getting it into your ecosystem and doing it with your use cases, because you know your business. And if you're looking for a new solution, you've got to make sure that it's going to meet your business needs. Right.
0: That is such a good key, especially with solutions that are third party, because there are some that are great for so many different use cases. I don't ever refer merchants to the same technology company every single time, ever. There's not one company that I think is good for everyone. When you're looking at the funnel and and the the different pieces, you really have to take in a lot of context. Such a good point that looking at it for your specific use cases, your specific customers, and it may work great for your direct competitor, but you may have completely different systems or different expectations and just different things. So it's always good to do.
1: Yep. And also the agility to change because uh, as fraud is adaptive. You do not solve fraud. You do not invest in a fraud program or a fraud technology With the idea that once you've got it, you check the box, you're done. And that's Um,
0: different from so many other projects you worked on. And the other project managers worked on, I'm sure, within your company.
1: Yeah, outside of the fraud space, when you worked on a project, you have a start date, you have an end date, you have a deliverable. And maybe that deliverable is a new business process or you ship a product. But in the fraud space, you are working under constraints to drive change, but it is for the purpose of getting something started, and then you're going to come back and continue to evolve and rev as the business that you're protecting with these you know, fraud program, as it evolves, as it scales, as new things come on. So that was something that I found really interesting when I switched into the fraud space. Because the IT departments and the business partners were thinking, oh, once we've got fraud integrated and that we're done, no, we're married now. You know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> we're and the platform, the solution itself has to scale and support everything that's already in place. Oh, by the way, I, I jumped ahead. We did the proof of concept and it turned out that solution did not meet our needs. So the realization was, we're going to need to build it in-house. And again, a lot of people will think, oh, Apple must have had hundreds of people working <laughs> on this. You have so much money. We did not. It was a team of 10. And while we had incredible support and sponsorship from our steering committee, it included Jennifer Bailey with the online store and Deirdre O'Brien, who was handling operations and about four other execs. The intention was we needed a solution that would support the whole company. It would replace the existing third-party solutions, but then we could scale it and use it throughout the company. And I'm not going to lie, there were a lot of people who thought this project's never going to that. Y'all are never mm-hmm. going to be able to build something yourself. No way, this isn't going to happen. And we had such good fortune with this team of 10, super talented on the data science side, engineering, platform architecture. They built a working solution that was running in parallel to what was in place with the online store within 90 days. Wow. the very bare bones. So imagine like you got to build a car. The vision is what the full car is going to look like, but mm-hmm. it's like, what do you need to get it rolling where you right. can say, you've got a comparable model and it's detecting and identifying the same, if not more of risky transactions. So that was huge. So within 90 days, we had that rolling because we had to say, trust us. We had to show some proof of the direction of building it in-house. So that was, I think that was January, actually, that was January of 2013. And then by August of 2013, we had the full-scale solution built and truly running in parallel with the production system that was relying on this third party. And this was production data going through the system so we could measure and evaluate. And the data science team was able to use real data to build things out. And I think it was three months after that when we said, okay, we're going to make the switch to this new internal engine and the case management component. And it was a huge milestone. Then suddenly, other teams were like, I want this. So it was just like, it was crazy because we were like, there's no way you guys are going to make this happen. And the team made it happen. And over the course of the next two years, this platform, we onboarded other lines of business of the company so that by the end of, I guess it was after three years, it was deployed across the company. And and all third-party solutions had been replaced. The team was way bigger by then, both on, on the DevOps side and the data science side project manager side, program manager side, because every time a new line of business would come on to this platform, that was a brand new program, a new fraud Mm -hmm. program for that specific space. So it was incredible. And it was some of my most favorite work in that space. And for Apple, I spent a total of 10 years in that team, I managed the platform with the portfolio of work, enhancements, capital investments, and it allowed me to help ensure that we were being very holistic mm. in the platform's deployment. It allowed me to work with program managers and business owners and ensure that things that I had done in my other roles at Apple of going deep within a business, bringing my experience from the non-fraud space, from more of the operational space in, being able to share insight with stakeholders in the business or in IT so that we were taking into account their needs, their priorities, so we could mitigate any apprehension. Because I will say of all of the work that I did at Apple, any part of the company, when I was being asked to do something new, changing a process, bringing in a new technology, new data sources in the fraud space, what was consistent in all of those was the human factor of uncertainty around change. (laughs)
0: It's like you read my mind. I legitimately was gonna ask if we could go back to when you were needing to both ask people to trust you and you're asking for their permission and their forgiveness almost at the same time. Mm-hmm. There is that human element of change. And I hear that from fraud fighters probably more than most everything else is those internal challenges of trying to educate other stakeholders or executives within the company of that. And a lot of times we as fraud people are not great at that. I think I definitely have learned, I've had to as a consultant and throughout my career, you know, how to do that sometimes after falling on my face. But I think the awesomeness is that you, you know, had done all this before for other teams. And and so you had that Mm -hmm. win behind your back. So I'm sure you had some trust within the company that, okay, Monica's on the, she's on top of it. But but even some of the best, most skilled communicators have a real hard challenge explaining to people that we need to protect our company. And oh, by the way, this is also going to protect our customers. This is the best thing for our company. It's not just about sales prevention. right? What are some things that you look back and know that you are proud of and that you did the right thing? I'm sure it wasn't just you. I know it was the rest of your team too, but I know how humble you are. So that's why I'm, I'm (laughs) I'm giving you that that permission, what are some things that you guys as a team and you as an individual Mm -hmm. did to really help that along the way? I bet people are listening with you really wanting to know that a question that's asked.
1: I will go back to the elephant. Yeah, And when we ran into challenges for me personally, what I would always, when someone would say no, I would say we need to make this thing happen. And someone say no. I always want to understand is the no, because it goes against policy, what is driving it? So there's that aspect Mm. of it. But the context of the elephant is, I also go in with the presumption of good intent. Mm. And that the people who have resistance, I want to understand where that's coming from. They're focused on their part of the elephant. And they know that foot, that left foot, like nobody else knows. And they're passionate about it and they own it and they're responsible and they're looking out for their team and the yeah. work, their day job, which in right. the tech world is demanding. It's a very demanding world. Mm-hmm. And with the fraud team expanding this decisioning, these analytics capabilities across the company it created this, well, why are you coming into my business? Mm, And they're not because I screw off, and not even so much territorial Mm. as in this is mine, you can't have, but it's more like I'm protective of mine, which is understandable. And if they don't have a good understanding of this team, because certainly when you have an executive saying, I want this team to go into this line of business, you got to figure out how to make it work. Mm. And often the challenges come from that conflict of ownership, understanding, and fundamentally, it's a communication challenge, right? Yeah. So the communication burden was on our team to articulate why we're coming in, what our purpose is, what the success criteria are, that it's to support not to take away ownership of something from Mm -hmm. the business. And that didn't make it easy because sometimes in those business groups, The resistance was, we don't need your help. We're okay. We don't have a problem. And using examples from other lines of business where Mm. the team had identified vulnerabilities that we just didn't know were there before, success in other areas. And certainly there were lots of stories of success on the online store and managing the gray market activity and obviously payment fraud and returns fraud, all kinds of things. It helped us build trust with people. So it wasn't like we're going to force it down your throat, even if we have executive support to do that or the executive directive to do it. So you can sometimes take a little more time to address those concerns, ensure that the party who's feeling threatened or uncertain, make sure that all of their concerns are addressed. What is their perception? Of the fraud team, what is it they're <laughs> worried will happen? And call right. it out, and be transparent, yeah. and really be true to your word. Mm. For me personally, if I told somebody I was going to do something by this date, then come hell or high water, I was going to do that because mm. it was very important to me that people knew that when I gave them my word, it meant something. And that's—I right. don't know if it's a southern thing, it's old school, but it, it's still very important to me. So you just have to earn it, mm. and then. Report on it and then show that support right. and report information back to the business where you're starting to see trends and weird behaviors. And it really worked. The program managers would build out these relationships to the point where the business would be like, hey, we can't go forward with this new program if we don't have our fraud program manager in the loop. So that the should... fraud team's dream, every fraud team's <laughs> dream is to
0: have it be someone else's idea that says, hey, We're doing a new business model, a new product, a new geography that we're going into, a new market. We need to loop in the fraud team. And that Mm -hmm. you speak to, it's never going to be as fast as we want it. But it goes back to that phrase of trust is earned in drops, but lost in buckets. Yes. And that works for trust and safety with your customers. And it works internally too. And recognizing that human component, I think can sometimes be a challenge in tech because people want to just drive forward without recognizing (laughs) it. I've been guilty of that in the past. There's definitely been at least one job I can think of that I came in way too hot. Because to me, it was like, oh my gosh, you guys are losing how many millions of dollars a month? Like, you need the fires, it's the building on fire. We need to do this now. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the company was like, and I didn't take as much time as I should have in that role to take a step back, be okay with it. Cause to me, it was just like, the house is on fire. We need to go Mm -hmm. get the hose. And when I think that that, it's looking out for the short term and the long term but that experience though I completely fell on my face really informed me to take a step back and always meet with executives of my clients when I can even mm-hmm. if the fraud team's bringing me in to just say hey what are your opinions on risk and what are you most worried that I'm going mm-hmm. to do and and what are you most hopeful that we're going to do and what's the outcome and that Seems to help. And sometimes I have to have conversations as far as fraud isn't just about dollars. It's about your brand. It's about the opinion of your customers, the customer experience. And I care about the experience of your good customers probably more than I care about protecting for fraud. And a lot of times that will alleviate the concerns. But just asking those questions, actually, something you said reminded me of a book I read recently, and I actually had the opportunity to meet and talk to the author a few months ago. And it's called Ask for More by Alexandra Carter. And she is a negotiator and mediator for the United Nations as well. Yeah. As well as at Columbia Law, she runs the mediation program there. Total badass, but you'd never know it when you saw her on the street, right? Just like a lot of us. And one of her best advice, she actually, I love the way she looks at negotiation and working with other teams. She also looks at it not just as like on your salary negotiation, but negotiating the direction of a project or negotiating all those things. And she has some questions that you ask yourself before going into those conversations and then questions that you ask the other person. And I think one of the most important questions I've learned is, you know, if you get to the end and you get a no, or you get that resistance is what are your concerns? And that's exactly what you said is sometimes they may have nothing to do with you. And maybe, well, we brought in this thing five years ago and this broke. And so I just don't Mm want to bring anything else in. It's crazy to me how often we don't ask that. We assume there's yeah, obviously
1: I, a fra- a well-known phrase about assuming. For a reason. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I had instances where when I asked, what is the reason why you're not comfortable or what yeah. are the issues? In one instance, they're like, I've got three other deliverables that I've mm-hmm. got to complete in this time frame." That allowed me to go back to that person's director and yeah. say, hey, Again, I asked the person, I said, are you okay if I mm. go to your director and let them know? And if I can get some of these deliverables pushed mm. out, put on pause, would that allow you to move this mm. forward? And they said, yes. And so I used that to go to their director, helped the director understand what it was we were trying to achieve. And if the director would approve these things for this person, could we get buy in to move forward with our initiative? And they said, yes. Now, there could have been instances where I said no, but at least it was a communication. They had nothing to do with this is mine. It was just like, man, I'm trying to get my stuff done and and you're slamming me. It's again, getting more information and then putting the right communication in place to move it forward.
0: I would imagine that that would also help you not take things personal either because it has nothing to do with you. I think too often, some of us in fraud fighting just assume it's They don't want to protect the company or it's about us. This time, I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about Mm -hmm. lots of people that Mm -hmm. use me as a sounding board. I've been referred to as the fraud therapist once or twice. And so that's really (laughs) where that's coming from. But I actually think that you, in a lot of ways, were the fraud therapist at Apple for so long too. And once you guys built up that reputation, and this is not uncommon either within other organizations where maybe they create a position for one person in fraud fighting, And then within three months, that person's doing three, four people's job. I was thinking about this a few months ago for another reason. This young woman came to me and was like, I feel like I'm doing three people's jobs. And I'm like, oh, I always was. And then I realized I was thinking backwards and I was like, I don't think I ever left a job and didn't get replaced by at least two people. (laughs) And I did too. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that actually isn't a great. Like, I see that both as a wow. Like, I did a lot too. I did way too much.
1: Like, uh, yeah, you know, I, I need to be a better advocate to. for myself. That's a whole other podcast. But Whole other topic. <laughs> but it, there is
0: something. So some of it is our own doing. But then again, there are people, and I have been that person where I've advocated many times to get someone else mm-hmm. and. I'm told you're doing it. It's almost like you need to drop some balls in order for them to realize you need, they're like, Oh, you're doing a great job. Yeah. But I don't have nights or weekends. I (laughs) haven't seen my kid in forever. Like, (laughs) even though we live under the same roof, that can also be a challenge, but I think it really speaks volumes to the product as well as to all the other work that was done on that project that very quickly, other areas of the business came to you. And this became, I don't think that this was ever the intent, but this became not just for the online store, but this giant receptacle for all data to go in and be analyzed for all different lines of business. And without giving too much information away, I'd love to share just a few examples of some things that were unexpected to you as far as lines of business that wanted to be a part of it or lines of business that benefited from that, that maybe you wouldn't normally think of because too many companies just see fraud prevention or asset protection as... Mm -hmm just the product and the money, but there's so many other transfers of value within an organization that can be monetized or that you can find information out of this business intelligence that fraud really provides, whether through looking at reverse engineering chargebacks all the way to the very beginning. What were some unexpected outcomes of being able to put various or maybe some
1: unexpected lines of business? Maybe that's the I I guess probably what was unexpected because certainly the intention was to utilize this solution in all of the customer facing lines of business, right? AOS, online store, and then iTunes, and then getting it out into the other lines of business. So I think what was unexpected was the realization of how it could be utilized for internal and from not just fraud, but waste and abuse and waste. Is an operational impact. Waste doesn't necessarily right. mean somebody's doing something malicious. It's Are we really doing the best job we can? Maybe we can find better ways of improving how we're doing deliveries if we have blanket rules around or outside of the, the system. So being able to apply machine learning in those operational spaces was the surprise and delight aspect of this project. So I think that was probably one of the biggest ones. I will say it's not like just like a big giant ball pit of data, but it certainly having it in one system or or having that focus, the capabilities and applying it was absolutely fantastic. Some of the things that were unexpected we needed to take into account was really around with this platform that provided way more flexible, sophisticated, analytics for detecting behaviors, we needed to make sure that there was a lot more rigor and focus on how people were using it. So there's consistency, right? And so that you can create opportunities for career growth for data scientists that are supporting online store, and then their opportunities then take their business experience, and then they can move into another line of business. So it was interesting in that The ecosystem, from a resource perspective, created growth opportunities for the data scientists to learn about the company, to take their experience in one area and apply it in another. So that was definitely unexpected. Some of the things that with fraud scenarios, with the effectiveness of blocking orders or bad behaviors by dirty, rotten, scoundrel fraudsters, identifying we've got to make sure they're not social, then they go, where's the next week link and calling customer support. And when you have a support organization who focuses on solving (laughs) customer problems, that's awesome. But how do bad guys take advantage of it? And that how do bad guys take advantage of it is true to your entire customer experience. Yes. From when they first get introduced to the end of that transaction. And another upside was by having this capability of this internal system and the wins that came out of the traditional fraud use cases that were being addressed, fraud vulnerabilities, the team could start looking broader and broader along that entire customer experience. And in parallel, the trust with the business partners got stronger and it allowed for those, hey, we need to call Dave's team and have these folks in the room as we talk through this stuff. And again, that wasn't overnight. That took time, but it had huge payoff. Well, and the other thing that just building
0: something so massive that has that much data in it and you're able using machine learning to slice and dice it, a great thing about real-time machine learning that's refreshing often that can be both supervised and unsupervised in different scenarios is that it makes it very challenging for fraudsters to understand what's being calculated. Absolutely. Rules engines, if this and this, then that. And they're like, oh, okay. So through trial and error, I can determine that they are adding extra scrutiny to anything over $500. Okay, now I'm just gonna do 450. And we could go through the list between billing and shipping and IP and device and all the other things about that. Just easiest example. But it also provides such an amazing... I into business intelligence, into customer experience and their behaviors, and also can allow in the right hands and in the right organizations, which I can only imagine you were in one of those, the opportunity to increase the good customer experience, yep. to provide a better experience for them so that the bad guys don't know how the heck they can't get in. And the good guys don't even know that there's a department. Absolutely. The That's the... I- Holy Grail that we always work towards. It. It's a puzzle I love to eternally solve for every <laughs> business model. But what were some of those some of those upsides that you were able to you know provide? And obviously, speaking in generalities, um, speaking
1: in general, certainly knowing who your good customers are and being able to make that decision very quickly again through the power of the analytics and the models that were built and the features mm-hmm. that would allow for very low friction and opportunities for expedited shipping. Those are just some small examples. Certainly just being able to take that and the feature building, like the feature building capabilities and that they're very fresh and they being able to utilize those and, and continue to learn within the models. So I need to think of some other examples because the beauty, like you mentioned, is the good customers had no idea of the complexity of technology that was being used to protect them. And their data, their account, their transaction, their card, if it was their card being used by a fraudster and do it in a way where that data itself is highly guarded and protected and the privacy, a big red line around the data that the fraud team was able to utilize, highly protected. But it allowed for the capabilities in this space. And this is just my personal opinion. I don't Know how things like Apple Pay could have happened without it? I don't. I'm in agreement. There's a with whole you. lot, that, and there's a whole lot that's happened in that space. And granted, it's not just the fraud team because when you're talking about digital wallet, the but payments team is
0: awesome too. I know
1: some of the players there, and they are brilliant. They are brilliant. And always but thinking I will ahead. Say the fraud team had built up a huge cachet of trust and credibility in what they were doing in their approach in their fierce commitment to protecting the company, the brand, and most importantly, the customer. And you asked earlier about what's of value. And I will say certainly within this whole experience of building out this platform, realizing there are so many things that can be turned into a commodity for sale that we didn't realize. And I know you asked people for their favorite fraud story. Mine is, actually, there's a lot. But this one in particular, there was an Apple executive who shall be on who may,
0: not? may not be a fairly commonly may may known not. person, yes, yep.
1: um, who traveled <laughs> to China to visit a retail store. And this executive was pretty obviously non-Chinese, uh, American-looking kind of person. And walking into the retail store was approached by someone offering to sell this executive, a reservation with the Retail Genius Bar. And that executive made a few phone calls. And that ended up being you know, when we were first going live with this analytics platform for the Apple online store, that suddenly changed our scope to include the reservation system, because we learned this bad guy was booking up all of the reservations for the Genius Bar, which are free. It was just a wonderful offering for customers to be able instead of calling somebody for an appointment. Or showing up and it's being too busy, have this reservation system where you can look at a calendar and you can book an appointment. We didn't realize there were going to be people who would book all the available spots and then sell them. This is a great example where, again, look at the entirety of your customer experience with your company and bring in some of your friends from the fraud team or the fraud guys. Go talk to your friends on the business side and just make it an informal, if I were a bad guy, how yeah. could I mess with this?
0: Yeah, that's one of my favorite things to do whenever a new business model is announced, like in tech, oh, how are they going to get manipulated? And then it's funny because if they become fairly well-known at some point, I'll end up meeting them and I'll be like, okay, I'm just curious. Is this how you guys
1: were impacted at
0: <laughs> the time? And a lot of times I'm right. But other times I learned that there's even more that I hadn't thought of. It's funny as you were talking about that. There's so many different things I want to tap on about that. because I, I love that story. And thankfully you had told me that ahead of time when <laughs> I asked that, be one of your fraud stories because for a few reasons but one thing I wanted to share is as you were talking about that I was actually picturing the analogy of the elephant and Mm -hmm. how this elephant was built and then there's this whole other ecosystem of other animals so to speak that are like latching on right like (laughs) reach on the foot or the different areas of the business and there are different people that are looking to be opportunists. Now, there's also great ones like people who developed in the app store and made millions of dollars because they were able to build something on the Apple platform. That happens quite often. Mm-hmm. But then there's this also this ecosystem of nefarious people who are looking to do it for their own benefit and not mutual benefit of Apple and another right. other entity and just seeing them profit off genius bar reservations. You would never think that because it Mm -hmm. to you, there was no monetary value. So you wouldn't think that there was fraud. And I see that often. And funny enough, you shared that story with me about a week and a half ago. And Mm -hmm. there have been two instances that have come up since then (laughs) that I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly like what Monica said happened with the genius bar. One was around vaccination reservations. Worried about? Yep. Yep. Ticketing systems that are being used either by local governments or more federal governments around the world that are using event ticketing technology for this space. And even though the tickets are free, of course, there are people who are, oh, do you want a vaccination appointment for 9am today versus waiting Mm -hmm. an unknown amount of time. Okay, pay me a hundred bucks. And then the other one was an article that just came out a day or two ago around a popular restaurant that's opening up in London for the first time in forever. And I, I tagged you on it and the LinkedIn yes, post. Because I saw I like, that. <laughs> exactly what we talked about. They were charging 15 pounds or 15 quid, I guess, for, sorry, I know we have, I know I have listeners in England. I'm saying it wrong, I'm sure, but just to get a reservation, whereas yeah. the restaurant was giving it out for free. This is not unique. And there are, for every one of those stories, there are hundreds of other use cases and discoveries uh-huh. that you discovered during that time that do apply to so many other companies, which is just another reason why I love collaboration. A lot of times companies will think, I just want to talk to other companies in retail. Actually, the gaming companies have this same problem or the mm-hmm. retailers in with sneakers and how big that has become over the last several... I think it's mm-hmm. been forever, but especially online now that there's other second markets that can be yep. sold on those. Some of their bots are similar to what the event ticketing companies have been seeing for years. So getting them together. So it's just all those little pieces... There is so much overlap, and I think that you've mentioned this to me before offline too. Like going to a company co- or a industry conference where you're like, "Oh wow, companies are still dealing with this. We dealt with it four or five years ago." Absolutely, that blew. I my see mind. that. I see that all <laughs> the time, though. You guys <laughs> and a few others are, are front facing to the most new attack methods, more or less, and those are the ones you're working on because you can identify all the rest. The early ones are the ones that hit you. And so you have to adapt to it much faster. And similar to account takeover, that started impacting you guys and other gaming companies back in... That was like 2006, 2007. Yes. Good point. Yeah. I remember when I was at MRC, it was starting to become a thing in 2012 with gaming companies. But you'd say, we couldn't even say ATO. Nobody knew what that was. But you'd say account takeover and people would be like, what? And it was ham- happening for banks long before too. But when it came into e-commerce, it was just impacting digital goods like iTunes, in-game currency, without saying any other company names. Games hey, currency.
1: There's yeah, so many things of value. Ah, like, yes. The people within these marketplaces, right? So the yeah. person who's selling stuff, and they're getting paid, their account's got a lot of value. And whether that's the marketplace of the really cool sneakers, or the, the person who's renting out the cabin on their property, or what's happening, even if your marketplace, you're like, oh, everything looks good. You might have some collusion activities where the buyer and the seller, they're using your platform for money laundering. You don't want that kind of stuff. So there's all kinds of bad actors out there that take advantage of the good intention and purpose of the business that people work really hard to set up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen that so much. I'm actually, especially I'm speaking at an event for airlines and hotels in a month or two. And I actually asked if I could talk about what I think is going to be impacting them the most once travel comes up. And that is account takeovers for those goods and the stored value for all those people that had airline, you know, trips points. canceled points that have racked up on their credit cards and other things, but also those people who had a trip canceled. And I worked with a lot of the largest travel companies and event ticketing companies at the time to create policies to ensure that they could provide store credit versus cash because they didn't have the revenue, especially the marketplaces. They had already Mm -hmm. paid the hosts or the drivers or well, not drivers, but the suppliers of the marketplace Mm -hmm. and they couldn't afford to provide cash. And so worked with them to be able to do that in a way so that they could avoid getting a charge back. And if they did get a charge back, how to respond properly But now that we're starting to look at, okay, there's vaccine in place, like we all have cabin fever and wanderlust, the bad guys are looking at that too. And they are going to be marketing to the same people you are in a sense and they need supply and they're going Mm -hmm. to go to your customer accounts that have just been sitting there that have been stale that probably use the same password as 800 other accounts that they have Mm -hmm. and just drain those like crazy and that's going to be a second wave of pandemic fraud for these companies and the ones I've been talking to often are aware that this is my concern but I don't think a lot of the individual airlines know that fortunately the conference was like yeah talk about whatever you think they need to know (laughs) Uh, but I was like I know this is not on your radar yet? Like, so they gave me a list of things that people ask about. I'm like, can I talk about something? I'm pretty sure. And if I'm wrong and that never happens, I will be so happy. I would much mm-hmm. rather be chicken little and have the
1: sky not fall. Yeah. You'd always rather be on the side of, okay, what are the potential threats? Yeah. And be in, in a plan and mitigation position yes. than, oh crap, we're under attack. Yeah. How do we stop the bleeding? And then how do we do it? With the least amount of friction to our good customers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm constantly thinking about that when working with clients as well as just what are the areas that we need to not only what are the holes we need to plug now, but what holes are they going to go to next? Because you plug those holes and ensuring the roaches you know, end, go elsewhere. And, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah. So where are they going to go next? Because a lot of companies can't afford to keep reassessing all the time. You said something that was so close to my heart as far as... This was a while ago in our conversation, but talking about how product managers, a lot of times they have an end date. And then once that system is in place, it's good. It's set it and forget it. Fraud isn't that way. And I've been... Several years ago, I wrote uh, an article actually inspired by a 2 a.m. conversation in Vegas with a lot of gaming company fraud fighters about how fighting fraud, a lot of companies and organizations think that fighting fraud is like fighting a dragon. It's a single event. It's single tools. If you fight one dragon with those tools, you can just dust off those tools and fight the next one. If you happen to have two dragons in your lifetime that you need to fight, but most of the time it's a single event. It's very anticipated. You can go out and do it, come back and be celebrated by your village. And then that article actually turned into now like a keynote speech and other things. It's taken a life of its own, but all the way down to Carice and kalisi or kalisi sound a little <laughs> close to each other. So one time I did it at a conference and ended up being... You
1: need to go in full costume. That right? would be awesome. <laughs>
0: Yeah, queen of the fraud dragons. I was like, I thought at first somebody just got my name wrong. I'm like, no, it's Carice. They're like, yeah, we know. (laughs) But it really is fighting zombies. They adapt, they morph. When you bring out a baseball bat, they're going to adapt to that and regenerate into- There's more to replace them. There's more, Yeah, yeah. Always, and they're just constantly, it's a constant adaptation of, okay, what's the tweak? And a lot of times it's, they're using tools that we've seen before, but just with a little bit of a tweak. And mm-hmm. they're constantly adapting to whatever tools, systems, policies, processes that fraud fighters put in place. And right. so that's why they're
1: smart. They're so, smart. They, they are so they, smart. they're running their own business. These are businesses, just some person in yeah. their mom's basement or whatever. Right. Yeah, you know, it's just these are full businesses. And these, this is how people are paying their bills. And yeah, it's really unfortunate. Um, and sometimes yeah. the governments and their
0: terrorist organizations and mm-hmm. their human trafficking and their money laundering and their drugs. And there's a lot of overlap with other nefarious things that this is funding that I imagine most companies don't want to be involved in or you ever know. have a headline even close to putting those two things in with your brand. But that's just why I applaud you guys as a team for really, in a sense, you really had no choice because you really were the NR, the gold standard for products that fraudsters can use a stolen credit card and, and buy an iPhone or whatever they buy. And then when they resell it, they're almost getting 100% of what they didn't spend, but what what mm-hmm. the value is. And so it's so much better than other items that they will have to discount 30, 40, 50%. You know, I just really applaud you guys for being ahead of the curve. And yeah, it, even though it was not, good. yeah, it wasn't the ride you were expecting, just starting with an RFP and then going all the way to a 10 year running this program. But I'm very familiar with how fun it can be to create and really fight for a duct tape and bailing wear sometimes and get to see it through. What an awesome experience for you. And then also what an awesome experience for that fraud team, that team of incredibly intelligent fraud fighters who had that fraud knowledge, but didn't have the patience or the people skills. And I'm saying this as a fraud fighter. I think I have a few more skills. Still, I can get just into the data and very indignant, just like some other people, a lot of people in this industry. It just seems like such a good Fit, that they were lucky to have such a good communicator on their behalf. I don't, yeah, I mean that. I, man, I think I could have done so much more <laughs> work with <laughs> someone like you at a couple of my past jobs than trying to also be fighting the front on the ground and trying to communicate it up front, externally and up. Up and out, so to speak.
1: No, thank you. That is so kind. And I will answer the question that hasn't been asked, which is, my God, why did you leave? And I I, you know, <laughs> I changed roles like every three to five years. I am by nature, I love to explore. I love to learn. I love to travel. I really hope someday, we'll, soon, I'll get my vaccination and be able to travel. And I like bringing order to chaos. I like providing yes. structure. I like connecting people. I love, uh, like, you need to meet this person. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and over the course of that ten years, very proud of my work, but it was becoming routine. Yeah. Even with, and it was just like, what? It's the team had gotten really big. I was like, I need to do something new. I need to do something different. And I had such an incredible career at Apple, and I was like, I want to see what's on the outside. How can I take what I've learned and done at Apple? And apply it to the outside world. Like, what is out there? So I initially, it was like, I'm retiring. And that was November of 2019. And then a couple months, I'm like, I'm really bored.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling I won't be able to retire for a really long time. But at the same time, I have a feeling I'll be the same way.
1: (laughs) And And not
0: do it for me. That is not challenging enough.
1: (laughs) And I'm doing some nonprofit work and I'm learning to play the ukulele. I showed my ukulele earlier. But one of my former colleagues, Greg Coleman, who was a data scientist at Apple, and he led the team that built out all the analytic protections, for digital goods and also Apple Pay. I had also worked in Apple Pay, but he left Apple and took time off. He wanted to recharge and then started a company, Sumatra, that is a machine learning startup. We're a tiny team of three. And really, the intention is about democratizing these capabilities of automation in the space of fraud, trust, and safety, as well as operations. And we're Still refining product fit, I will say if there's anybody who'd like to hit me up on LinkedIn, if you're a data scientist, whether you recently graduated or you've got practical experience for a business, give me a jingle and I'd love to have you get your hands on this. But our motivation was around how do we help those Smaller businesses, whether you're a marketplace or social platform or e-commerce, just who may not have access to these tools or understand how to utilize them, let's find ways to help them through the development of this analytics platform. If you want to use it for rules-based, you can do that. But if you want to use it for machine learning, there's a way to do that as well. And Greg and I were talking recently around the tagline because like you said, the, the space here is huge. Vendor space with where and we crowded. Were and, Oh geez. yeah, super crowded. When we were doing the RFP, there was a handful of big yeah. enterprise players that had some solution. And, and they, they were, were really cool. just up
0: and coming anyway. The vendor floor I, I at industry conferences. RFP.
1: Yeah. Yeah, after the RFP, interestingly enough, some of those vendors had some more offerings that were in line with what we'd asked for. So you know how that. <laughs> was. I do, and actually, you and I have talked offline
0: too because it's just funny how our you know careers were parallel, but we actually yeah. didn't know each other until fairly recently. You attended the F4 retreat, the Fearless Female frog Fighter. For, yeah, I was loved just- it. I loved having you, and I was like, you know, we need to have Monica on at the podcast. But I, yes, I also remember when you guys went off for that RFP. I remember several of those vendors doing, you know, backflips and gymnastics and whatever they could to try to get the bid. I believe there were NASCAR trips and helicopter runs, (laughs) and not with me. We don't Led Zeppelin (laughs) ticket. I don't know. Those were all at conferences, but. It wasn't just for you guys, there were for others too. But yeah, there were also some that claimed that they were working on things involving you guys that weren't that I could share with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I shared with you seven years later, it doesn't really do anything. But at the time I'm like, I happen to know the guys at Apple and I know they're not, but whatever. But yeah, it's crazy the space and I... And
1: it it, is very different being on this side. Super different being on the vendor side now. Right. And we're... Being on the Apple side, going to conferences and other companies wanting to talk. And now on the vendor side, really hard to get businesses to talk to the vendor us. And we're like, but no, come on, please trust us. So it's, that's been a transition.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that has changed a lot in the last even just five years with VC money coming in and just so many companies multiplying their sales force unfortunately, I think you probably remember this time too, that it used to be pretty collaborative with merchants and vendors. Yes. Um, When I started and for the first probably half of my career, but then merchants realized like they can't trust them anymore. And I get some grief about having hosting merchant only collaboration Mm -hmm. calls. And I'm like, they don't know if you're a good one or a bad one. And it's almost similar to fraud analysis, right? Like merchants are going, can I trust you? Can I not trust you? Can I trust Mm -hmm. you? Can I trust you? And Mm It's so hard that other people in your space that you have nothing to do with have unfortunately tarnished that trust. And yeah. I see both perspectives very clearly.
1: Um, and I get it because I, yeah, I, I yeah, on the other side <laughs> we we're evaluating things. But I think it goes back to what you said, this truth, which is trust is earned and drops yeah. and lost in buckets. We're being patient, we're self-funded, and we believe in what we have to offer. And we've done some pilot work and proven it out. And also of the faith that it will play out. There's more than enough work to go around. There is no single silver bullet. Because fraud is adaptive, it's important to look at other solutions like Sumatra to augment if you already have something in place. Yeah. Or if you don't, you know how you can utilize it. What uh, are the ways And in the space of machine learning, there is a broad set of applications or use cases in which you can apply, you know, machine learning. And it's a matter of where you have the data and the time and, and to utilize the capabilities. So it's good. I have no regrets about making that decision. It's also allowed me to be closer to my parents who live in San Antonio, and I can split my time between San Antonio and Austin. And I'm very excited. I've learned a ton. I learned that I'm definitely not a developer. I actually tried to learn Python. I spent a few weeks learning Python, and it just didn't turn me on. I can read code. like I'm a conversational. I've got conversation-level coding where I can read somebody else's code and understand it but I have no interest. I have high respect for the people who do that. I am not a data scientist. Yeah. And I I just
0: think that there's too much importance put on and those people are so needed and important and brilliant. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, I think a lot of us discount soft skills and I don't like the term soft skills, but we discount how important it is to have someone who's hurting the cats, to have someone that's owning the timeline, who's owning the deliverables, who's owning the scope. Who's making sure that there's not 800 other things that we're committed to because this person said that and that person's in all the things. I think there's a reason why there are only three people at that company and you're the one that's not technical or technical, but in a different way. Yeah. 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 So I'm really excited to see what the three of you, where that goes. I think between the three of you, you have so much experience and information and knowledge about how something can be done in a different way. So will be there and definitely
1: if somebody just wants to have a conversation because yeah. we love talking about this stuff and right. like you said it's a fraud fighters love to geek out yeah yeah no this has been awesome mm-hmm.
0: awesome speaking of geeking out we could go so much longer but we've already been further than I think both of us planned, but I just really appreciate your time and your openness and your sharing of your fun experiences. So much work and sleepless nights, but how cool to stay on top of the mountain and look at how far you came and how far you got to help the company go. It's really cool.
1: Thank you. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Absolutely. You too.
0: Well, hopefully we'll do a part two somewhere down the line and have more updates. And you can talk about just the birth of Sumatra and where you started <laughs> in your events. <laughs> awesome. Great. Thank you so much, Priy. Oh, thank you, Monica. Have an awesome rest of the day.
1: You too. Bye bye.